Hello, Acquired LPs. We are coming at you today with a very special episode with Gary Tan of Initialized Fame. And of course, before that, White Combinator and Posterous and has had a long and very illustrious career here in Silicon Valley. And we are going to talk about the evolution of early stage investing. Gary has uh, seen it all. I think you started, you know, back in the early days when uh, early stage investing meant a two million dollar Series A at a five million dollar poster. Maybe that was even high. Yeah, wow! And yeah, uh, goodness, things have changed. So excited to have you here. Thanks for joining us, and uh, we can't wait to dive in. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, big fan of the show, and it means a lot to me that you'd have me. Oh, well, likewise, that you would come on. Let's just dive right in. We're going to weave in the story of initialized along the way, but we thought maybe maybe we'd start kind of way back uh, in the those prehistoric days yeah. of what so life Arthur was Rock. like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we've already done that on the Sequoia uh, yeah, episodes. Yeah, 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 totally. <laughs> not, not that far back, but uh, when was it that you started Poster? So was it in 2005? Oh, it was 2008, actually. So oh, it was 2008. I, uh, oh, it was 2005, later than I thought. I was still at Palantir. So I had just designed the logo for Palantir and built one of the major product teams. And then before that, I was, you know, Stanford computer engineering. And the crazy story for me is that friends of mine were starting a company and I was, you know, lowest of the low PM at Microsoft. And, um, my friends, yeah, what's that like? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> great place to start, you know, great reach. And then uh, friends of mine were starting a company with Peter Thiel. So they, they flew me down to San Francisco to have dinner with Peter right, right when he write, wrote the $500,000 check to Facebook. And he said, Gary, what are you doing at Microsoft? You're wasting your time. And I said, I you know, wanted to work at a startup, but there weren't startups in 2003, 2004. He said, this is, I'm so sure this is the right thing. You need to quit your job. He asked me how much a year I made. And I, I told him it was 70 grand. And he said, well, I'll, how about this? I'll write you a personal check from my bank account to yours. This is zero risk opportunity. Quit your job. And I said, Holy crap. thank you very wow. much, Mr. Teal, but I might make it to level 60 next year. And I got on a plane and went back to Seattle and that company <laughs> turned into Palantir. Oh my but gosh. I ended up joining a year later. They had hired away uh, some of my closest friends who were way smarter than me, you know, Bob McGrew, who now runs stuff over at uh, OpenAI and just so many smart people you get to meet in Silicon Valley over time. But once they hired away smart people smarter than I, I was like, I need to quit my job at Microsoft because in the moment when your friends are starting a business and you don't know anything about startups or tech or how these things are funded, you say, well, I have a real job and, uh, you know, <laughs> and and you say no. So we were talking about this with Kevin and uh, Julia Hartz on the Eventbrite episode. Like, I imagine you were right out of college. Your parents were probably like, if you even told them about this, like, oh yeah, they're like, don't no do way it. would they let you do this. Right? That seems unsafe. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the immigrant mentality for sure. Gary, that's an amazing story, and it is absolutely one of survivorship bias. Because I oh, want to share sure. my story Please. is that. I had a friend who was starting a YC company. I had just moved to Seattle and I was about to start my job at Microsoft. And uh, this friend lobbied and lobbied and lobbied to come and get me to co-found the company with them. And for years, it looked like a huge mistake that I said, are you kidding me? I'd have to give back my my signing bonus. I just moved here. Uh, this person told me something very similar that they would you know, help definitely pay back the signing bonus. So it'd be a zero risk thing. They'd pay for my move. But as years have gone by, uh, that company sold for exactly the preference. Yeah, totally. And it would have been a completely, it would have been a wash. Yeah, it's tough. 
for a while, I was like, wow, that's one of several examples in my life where I really blew it on joining something early. But sometimes, not that my choice was the right choice, but unless it's Peter Thiel calling, you know, the story doesn't always end the way that uh, that yours yeah, does. Yeah, these things are crazy risky, right? I often think about, wow, like he was willing to pay that much um, upfront for an engineer. But, you know, now the rest of my career, even as an investor today, is now actually sort of the inversion of that, which is now I realize actually it's the software engineers and designers and product people, the builders who uh, create the future. And that's why we're able to do early stage at all, is that uh, we look a lot more like them at that stage. And so they'll pick us. And on the flip side, because, you know, I can still code a little bit and I still do design. I'm probably better at um, marketing now than I was 10 years ago. So uh, you, you've diversified you know. your skill set. Yeah, that's right. So we look more like them, right? So that then that's like kind of the cool thing. And, you know, I think that, that fits with the overall series, right? It's like we're talking about, uh, you know, the traitorous eight sending real le- typewritten letters across the country to, you know, uh, financiers, right, who are totally different from them. And then now what we're talking about, what you guys do and what we're doing is we're not different. You know, I, I think that time was for venture capitalists to say, like, we're set apart, we're different uh, than... You we're know, in this ivory you, tower you know, yeah, on Sand Yeah, Hill the ivory and... tower is different. You know, I, there's actually a, a ritualistic aspect that I was talking with uh, Jeff Lewis at Bedrock about. He's, he, he has this theory that is really interesting around... There is something to be said for I'm walking up the steps of Sequoia and, you know, this is what, you know, legends before me did. And I, I could be a part of that. Right. Um, and so now it's Zoom. So if anything, now it's flipped. <laughs> so now it's about the one on one conversation that you can have right here. That's why you have the rise of influencer investing. And that, you know, I know we'll talk about it later, but that's part of the reason why I think. YouTube is so important for me anyway. I'm like investing very deeply into it because I I think it's a very interesting innovation in the course of how ventures are created, actually. VCs are (laughs) historically take a long time to catch on, right? I mean, YouTube was founded right around this time that we're talking about. And here we are in 2020 and people are only just starting to catch on. Gary, you talked about your time as a builder, and we're going to put a pin in this uh, influencer investing and, and definitely come back to it because I think it'll be a nice way to round out the the full story. So take us through founding Posterous, leaving Palantir, how you raise money for that, how you went about getting enough proof that there's a there there to invest more of your time. There's nothing quite like seeing a super early stage startup for your own eyes. I actually am always, I've always been really thankful for my time working with, you know, Stephen Cohen and Joe Lonsdale and Alex Karp, like just the founders of Palantir, being able to build software from scratch. Uh, But, you know, the more subtle, interesting thing that I feel like I learned was how important it is to basically continue to hire people way smarter than you, actually. The cult making and the myth making of the startup very early is really underplayed. I don't feel like people talk about it enough. And Palantir, I think, was very, you know, remains very good at it. The only cult that was stronger than our cult was the Facebook cult, I think. And so, (laughs) but it's, you know, interesting to see, you know, years later, that's, uh, you know, an order of magnitude bigger as a company, which is fascinating to me. It's like, the, you know, I, I think that that actually is directly proportional, like how strong your cult is will result in how big your company ends up being, assuming you're in the right market and like 10 other things that, uh, you know, you need to survive. <laughs> <laughs> you need to be one of those survivors, right? Like a lot of things have to break your way, but. 
what's an example of something that was done at Palantir to help build that that cult brand? Honestly, I think the simplest thing was even just trying to get the smartest, most capable, hardworking people, which sounds really stupid simple. It seems like everyone should do that. But honestly, like people just don't. When you think about hiring, the the mistake that a lot of founders make, and honestly, I made this mistake at some level too when I worked on Posturus was, you know, who can I get, right? And that's the wrong question. It's like, you should start with who is the smartest person I know and it doesn't matter where they're at, right? Because if I get them, then our self-fulfilling prophecy becomes destiny. And if I don't, then it doesn't. And I'm not doing myself or them a favor by not going after them. So we would just go and like people would pass out yellow legal pads and we would force everyone to step away from their computers. And it'd be like, write down the names of 20 people who are the smartest people you've ever met. And it's like in any walk of life, right? Like it didn't have to be engineering or design or whatever. It, it was just, who are the smartest people you know in your life? And then, you know, we take it into a back room and cross-reference it. And then those were like our hit list. It's like, let's go get those people. Like, we're going to take them to dinner. We're going to take them to lunch. We're going to meet them. We're going to chop down the tree. We're going to go get them. That mindset leads to doing things like, you know, what Peter offered to you. I mean, that's like, I can't believe I've never thought of that before. But like, yeah, you were ungettable. You were at Microsoft. But like, well, what if you just offered to you know, personally cover the gap in your salary. Like it didn't work for you then, but a certain number of people that's going to work with. And if you're not in that mindset of like, okay, I don't even going to try to get this person. Well then like you, you don't know, but once you're like, no, I'm going to try and get them. Well, what can I do? Yeah. And then it just compounds from there. Right. Because smart people want to work with smart people. And I think that that is, you know, testament and credit to what they've been able to build over the years, like that becomes self, you know, self-fulfilling prophecy and then self-impelled because if you have a, a group of smart people who are very driven, it's a magnet that attracts a lot more people, even if they know nothing about the mission. Past about 30 or 40 people, they started doing really awesome campus hires. And that that is actually very, very hard for companies to do. I actually haven't really seen anyone do it that early. It tends to be in the hundreds of people by the time they feel like they have the cycles to do it. But if this is a, you know, 15, 20 year business, it actually is really smart to start on that campus hiring sooner. And then it pays off in two or three years when, you know, you got the, you know, Stanford uh, section leaders for, you know, one of six X and A and B, you have the best people from CMU, you have the best people from MIT. And like generation to generation, the software engineers know, like I, I need to go there because the smartest person I knew from that year went to that company. You're surrounded by all these like incredibly smart people in this, uh, to keep using the word cult at, at Palantir, like why leave and start a company? Yeah. I mean, I've always also had this thing where I can't really follow directions. And so, <laughs> <laughs> and what I realized is that's actually sort of the founder mindset at some level, you know, at Microsoft, I just, it felt like I was caged and there were things that were obvious, but I was like nine levels too deep in the organization to make the call. And then in retrospect, I probably, the most successful people I remember from the Microsoft days were like amazing at hopping to like level five or level six, or like, you know, they knew their POM, they knew their VP, uh, those people would answer emails. You know, I don't know how they did it. But that's actually the advice I give to incoming like PM classes and 
Uber and, you know, Google and elsewhere. It's like, hey, this is an org like any other, right? And you just, you know, just treat people like people. And I think that that I wish I spent more time doing earlier in my career. It was like, oh, all of these people are just human beings and they have, you know, wants, needs and desires. And then actually you as the youngest person in an org will know more about reality than that person who's been in a bubble for years and they want that. And so that that exchange, I think, is fascinating. And so, I, you know, I think entrepreneurship is actually quite possible, but it's uh, probably as hard or harder than entrepreneurship because entrepreneurship, you just say, hey, well, I'm just going to do it this way. <laughs> and, yeah. And so that was for me, uh, you know, inevitable. Even now today, it's like, I don't really care about power or control, but what I realize is when things are broken, I do need to make the call. That was in me, like when I was 22 and 23 and 25. And, you know, even when I was a dev lead for, you know, and I worked directly for the founders, it was like, even that wasn't enough, you know, because I do have a very intransigent streak. And when I get something in my head, I must have it. And <laughs> so the people who are founders like that just sort of know that about themselves, I feel like. This is actually, I think, the perfect tee up to back to early stage investing and how that's evolved. Like this, this cult idea, I think, you know, YC really took that whole concept and started applying it to a community of founders rather than just a company. You were then leaving Palantir, going to start this company how did you first hear about YC? I mean, this you must have been applying in 2007 to, or 2008. Yeah. I remember the moment when I heard about the Y Combinator cult because it waltzed in the front door on uh, our first office at Page Mill Road. It was like a CMU friend of one of the first employees. They came by for lunch. Obviously, you know, you did the cater lunch things like come on by. I think we were trying to recruit them, honestly, and they had just gone through the YC batch. It was the talk of the office afterwards because they were like, haha, this Y Combinator thing, it's like $17,000 for 7%. What a bunch of chumps. <laughs> that was like <laughs> what people said in the office. And then I was like, huh, 7%. I mean, that's not a lot of money, but they are their own founders and they did raise money afterwards. So that was sort of like the kernel, you know, and it was interesting to see the mockery, right? Because here's our cult in opposition to their cult. And, you know, anytime cults bump up, it's like, it's actually like mockery, it's war, right? So I think that that's one of the interesting things. It's like, that was my first interaction with the Y Combinator cult was actually like, oh, that's garbage. I mean, that was what my team said, even like my other co-lead, he was like, I would never do that. And then that was enough to get my <laughs> attention because I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like now today I do this all the time where it's like, anytime there's a very strong reaction to something, there's something there actually. I heard about it and later I found myself applying to it in like another in Do you just remember a year who that later. team was that you, that you met that day? I think it was Zumo Drive and they ended up selling actually. I ended up getting to know David Zhao. Yeah, he's a good angel investor now. And so, you know, it's just funny actually how these things work out. But yeah, I applied and it was really Paul Graham's essays that I started reading Hacker News and I found Paul Graham's essays. And then of course, once you own the media, you own a little part of, you know, the 20 million developers in the world's brain. I think Hacker News was actually a really powerful thing for Y Combinator and for Paul Graham. I mean, he had his essays, he converted into media. And I remember that the essay that did it was the one that said, hey, Gary, you weren't meant to have a job. And I was like, oh my God, 
that's you're, you're like putting voice to some, this feeling that I've had for like my entire life. I've just been in a cage this whole time and I'm ready to be let free. And it's funny because years later, I ended up working for Paul Graham. And one of the big criteria that he and Jessica would often talk about when after we met a team, like in those 10 minutes of an interview, immediately, often we would ask, you know, were those founders animals and what kind of animals were they? <laughs> <laughs> which is just like this crazy heuristic, but, you know, very valuable. It's like, oh, like, you know, and that was the feeling I got when I became a founder, which is like, oh, it's finally my call. Like I, I have been uncaged from the systems that have like prevented me from <laughs> doing the things I want to do. I mean, obviously you, you worked for Paul, you know him quite well. How purposeful was he about Hacker News and his essays being part of this like this was it's so hard to remember now i mean we're talking 2006 7 8 so long ago in startup time but he knew this you know that like yeah media gave you this direct pathway into you know you read that and you were like paul is talking to me these are my people you know how how intentional was that I think it was highly intentional. I mean, if you read Hackers and Painters, his original book, which which was his essays, I mean, he, in a way, was trying, he had always been that magnet for people like him, right? I mean, you can, he could write about things that didn't even have anything to do with startups. And I thought that they really resonated. I mean, I, you know, I don't intend to speak for like that much of startup dumb, but, you know, a lot of us were nerds and, you know, so was Paul. And he wrote about that very eloquently, you know, like secondary school and high school, that that whole experience for a lot of people is like being babysat, actually. It's like horrible, crushing amounts of boredom, plus like a, a social dynamic that, you know, designed to like sort of torture people like us, actually. Right. And, and it's like, are you serious? And then you zoom out a little bit and you're like, oh, actually. And so I think like that was a breath of fresh air because it's like, oh, giving voice to like a type of person that like was me, you know? And it's like, that that's me. And I saw him go on to find success in a world that like, we want to believe the real world is like college, right? It's that we get to really expand our minds and follow what is true to us. And we're, you know, deeply going down the rabbit hole of the thing that interests us the most. But the reality is you go into the world and it's actually like high school and it's, you know, it's unfair. <laughs> Maybe even middle school sometimes. Yeah. I mean, worse, you know, it's worse. Right. And so yeah. it's like the American corporate industrial exactly. complex of, yes. yeah, more people work at big companies than ever have before. And there's fewer small companies. If you look back a hundred years and I'm going to be ethnocentric here, but say in America, people's professions were way more distributed, way more people worked for themselves or the local thing and not 500,000 people for the national bank. Yeah. And so you go off into this world and, you know, you take people who are founders who are like basically fish out of water their entire lives, and then you give them a voice. And of course you become the Pied Piper. <laughs> Oh man, I remember sharing those like religious texts. Like I remember startups equals growth and stuff. There's so many that I would like, I think I assembled a, my own list at one point of like, these are my favorite of Paul's yeah. writing so that I could share them in a sort I of like easily that. referenceable way with people. Gosh, you yeah. had the acquired book club back in the day. That's right. <laughs> so all of startup dumb period is also its own cult. So, and then we have our high priests. 
Well, listeners, this is the perfect opportunity to introduce a new sponsor here on ACQ2, Quarter. Their new product, Quarter Pro, launched about a year ago and is already adopted by several Fortune 500 companies and some of the world's largest hedge funds and equity research departments. Yeah, this research platform is transforming the way qualitative public market research is conducted. Here's how Quarter Pro works. You can get every piece of first-party information from public companies all in one single place. That's live earnings calls with real-time transcripts, company filings, slide decks, and more. Quarter Pro has built a world-class user interface for this. Yep. Let's say you're an investor or a podcaster, and you've got the use case where you need to look up a company such as Novo Nordisk, Hermes, or Visa. You can open their platform and search Guidance or Market Outlook. Quarter Pro then immediately identifies all instances where a company has historically mentioned and discussed these topics in all of their IR-related communications. Or here's another pretty crazy thing they've done that's difficult to get anywhere else. You can actually search through literally every individual slide in Quarter's database, covering 9,000 public companies and millions of slides for any keyword mention based on Quarter's AI capabilities. This truly makes it easier than ever to conduct qualitative analysis of entire industry value chains and specific companies. So whether you're an equity research analyst, an asset manager, or an investor relations professional, this platform will help you increase your productivity through their live call, transcript components, AI-powered summaries, and a feature a Allowing you to visualize the entire timeline and changes of specific slides throughout quarters. Quarter also offers their database as an API solution. This enables other companies such as trading and research platforms, as well as AI and LLM companies to build custom solutions and integrate this database into their offerings or add functionality on top of the data. Yep. To find out why leading companies globally are choosing Quarter Pro in their day-to-day work and to experience the platform firsthand, request a personal demo by visiting quarter.com slash acquired. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R, no E, Q-U-A-R-T-R dot com slash acquired. Or click the link in the show notes to get the personal demo from the Quarter team. Our thanks to Quarter. Since we're going to talk about the evolution of early stage investing here, I want to ground some truths and some numbers. So in this time frame, when you're starting Posterous, like, could you have raised from VCs before going and doing YC or... In retrospect, yes. And then I just didn't know, honestly. My co-founder, Sachin Agarwal, was the lead engineer for Final Cut. I think he actually built maybe the first version of the rebuild. So he's a world-class engineer, still a world-class engineer, great PM. And then for me, I had left Palantir, which, you know, the funny thing about Palantir is like leaving Palantir, nobody had heard of it yet. Like 2007, like it was like, oh, this startup, who knows, something to do with Peter Thiel, like... Lord cool of the logo. Rings, <laughs> that yeah. was it. Lord of the Rings. Like, what's what's going on over there? So, but actually, that's one of the very interesting patterns I find. When I left Palantir, nobody had heard of Palantir. Nobody cared. It was another ten years until it like became a thing that people really paid attention to. And by then, they were on a path. They had a thousand employees and making hundreds of millions of dollars. You know, and so you know that that's sort of in a nutshell like the magic that happens. Like Y Combinator was the same thing. You know, two thousand five, it was a fringe thing. Like if you read Paul Graham's essays and, you know, he spoke at MIT and Harvard and, you know, a few schools. And that was the very first YC batch. Were you in a California batch or a Boston batch? I was in the last Boston batch in summer wow. 08. So I actually lived oh. in Mountain View. No way. Uh, but oh, I knew that, um, so this was 2008. And so we felt like our 
startup idea actually had a very short fuse because the iPhone was brand new and our idea was post by email. So, and we both had iPhones and, you know, Flickr and WordPress and all of these other social media services had post by email, but it was like secret password at like flickr.com or whatever it was. So we figured out, uh, I was actually my co-founder who figured out we can just do post at and then you don't have to remember. And then it's just a brand. Like it's postapostros.com, easy. And then it was the, you know, I think Facebook and uh, Twitter probably each had less than 10 million users still. So it was really like the proto era of social networks. So uh, it turned out that we were the way people wanted to post to their networks because it was easy to post photos that way. Um, and it's funny because I can point to the month Postra stopped growing and it was actually uh, the day Instagram was released. Oh, wow. And so Instagram, oh. uh, in the share page today, we see it every day and use it all the time. A billion, billions of people use it every day. But on the day it launched, we were one of the check marks. It was Facebook, Twitter, Foursquare, and Posterous. As, as and, the share sheet official yeah. that Apple launched? Yeah, yeah. No, no, the one, the one, oh, in, the one in, in Instagram. In Instagram, uh, Instagram. yeah. So today it's only Facebook, obviously, but back then it was like, you know, we supported like 20 other social networks. And I think we were, you know, the natural, I think we were a top 200 site by then. So, so you stopped growing when Instagram it was launched? that plus we didn't shard the database properly. I was a bad manager. Like it's like a lit, you know, I mean, you know how startups fail. It's like a litany of different reasons that, you know, in the confluence recently, I did a video about you know, why planes crash. And it's a similar reason to why startups fail, which is like, it's not one thing. It's actually five different things that all come together and they become intractable and the plane crashes and kills everyone. <laughs> so, so it's like one of many, this was like one of the mistakes or one of the things that we weren't aware of. This is the fog of war part of it. And, you know, Paul Graham would always talk about how, you know, if you're an engineer, it's like being a physicist, like, you know, what the next element on the periodic table will be. But in the moment, like we didn't understand, right? And I remember pitching benchmark this. Uh, so I sat across like Peter Fenton and Bill Gurley uh, raising our series A for Posterous. And we had like 25% long-term cohort retention, which is like eh, a little low. Like, uh, you know, my friends at Mixpanel say like 20 or above is like, you could be a top site. So, so we were like in there, you know, we didn't get, we got the meeting, but we didn't get the money, right? Yeah. Which is funny. It was, was this your first round after YC or was there a seed Oh, there before? was a seed. So yeah, I mean, that, that's the funny thing is like, you know, being two Stanford grads who were both engineers, uh, I didn't realize it. Like we probably could have raised, but what's funny is it would have been just money. And what we got out of YC was actually the network. So, you know, the people who taught us how to raise money, it was like James Lindenbaum who created Heroku and like Josh Wilson at Freedom Robotics who actually like, it's funny, he, I funded him now. So it's funny how things come, <laughs> come full circle, you know? Um, and then the crazy thing is we got a lot of help from other people who were just like us at that stage. And so we got very tactical advice that was extremely secret, right? This is like now widely known, but like Airbnb, for instance, it was like, you know, I think that they were already thinking about this, but, you know, we stole users at Postress. Airbnb was like the batch right after us. And I remember like grabbing, you know, burgers with um, 
you know, I think it was Joe. And we were like, I was like, hey, like we basically just steal users from elsewhere. We look at the APIs <laughs> and we're like, hey, you know, what? how do we get our name in there and become a utility for other people by piggybacking on other platforms? And of and course, then, you're referring to the Craigslist offloading that I they actually would then... blogged about it once. <laughs> and then he was like, hey, dude, could you just like delete that? Oh, <laughs> that was you. Oh, my gosh. I remember reading that blog post. I didn't realize that you no, were this that. is like 08, 09. And then and then I think it ended up being like coming out much later. But the reality is like you have to go where your users are. And I'm glad they did it. Honestly, Craigslist. Craigslist you know, wasn't doing it. Mm, they weren't. You know, it was bad UI. And like, yeah. so. I like the unbundling, right? And so it's interesting to just see how these networks sort of evolve. And it's like secret knowledge, right? I mean, that is sort of this essential, aside from, you know, believing X and nobody else believes X, it's also like secret know-how. And that's where I think probably what you guys are doing with some of the incubation that you're doing, like with, you know, networks, I mean, honestly, like what Angelus is doing and on deck, and there's like just so many, you know, spearhead angel track by first round. I mean, there's so many different forms of this that are very powerful today that didn't exist back then, which is awesome. I think it's awesome. Like a thousand flowers are blooming around both, you know, the cults themselves and how to make the cults. And uh, I think that that's like really setting the world on fire. Like all of that, I really applaud. So, okay, you're armed with this secret knowledge. You then raise a seed round at the end of YC? Yeah, it was actually Satish Dharmaraj, who's an MD now at Redpoint. And he was uh, an angel. I think he had just sold his company. And so he had created Java server pages before. And then it was Bill Lee, who's actually runs Craft Ventures oh, now. Yeah. Eric Hahn. So there was, I mean, there were like really strong angels who like probably would have backed us without YC. Listeners, you'll know uh, Bill Lee's name actually from the SpaceX episode. Oh, yeah. He was the first guy off of the first Tesla, I think, in the doc one of the documentaries. <laughs> like he has number one off the off the assembly line. So, wow. and yeah, it was interesting because these angel groups were, you know, Eric Hahn had funded all of them. So, yeah, the joke was Eric and uh, Satish were SMTP. And then Bill actually started as a founder <laughs> doing NNTP. And so he was at Berkeley and they basically could have chosen like self-aware games. HTTP. Is that right? He was news. Uh, he was doing um, news servers. And so how all the news server, the hosted news server service for all the ISPs, like I think that was his first startup that made him hundreds of millions the first time around. So, so it's just funny. Like, I mean, all of this is very nerdy and around like literally the protocols, right? <laughs> <laughs> His joke would would always be, oh man, I really wish I chose, you know, HTTP or SMTP instead. <laughs> <laughs> Much more widely used protocols. In this 2008-ish time frame, raising a seed round was not going to initialized and going to like the, frankly, I mean, in, in the Northwest, it'd be PSL Ventures, which obviously I've got a, a big horse in that race. But like, it's not there are no seed funds it's not there's like no, there's a hundred yeah. seed funds out there you go pitch it's like these angel groups or super angels is that the right time frame yeah totally i guess the advice back then which i feel like is still true is like if you're going to have a series a investor like have a couple or just have zero <laughs> that was so we ended up having zero that was the right thing for us and it's so funny you were thinking of it as series a right even though today for sure that would have been Oh, sorry. Uh, so actually later Satish became a, a VC and then he wrote, he, we were one of his first Redpoint series A's. Ah, 
which cool. I think still happens now, honestly. I mean, yeah. we did it a few times um, for initialized and yeah, I think that that's going to continue to be something that happens. It's like, you're going to have seed investors who are successful and they're going to build up their LP bases and they will do a couple rounds in a row, right? Well, Sequoia does it now, so yep. why wouldn't anyone else? Yeah, totally. Did you know at the time that Sequoia was funding a lot of YC? Or what, like, was that talked about? Was that known? I guess basically at some point, Paul and Jessica had put all of their personal money into YC and they knew it was working. Though what's interesting is even by 2008, when we were pitching people even for the Series A, but certainly at the seed, like we would go to the VC's offices and we'd meet with partners and they would actually just be like, hey, you guys are like Stanford plus like worked at Apple and this other startup. Like, why did you take YC? Uh, which is very interesting because <laughs> for us, we were like, oh, well, we want to be like Dropbox and Reddit. So it was just funny to see, like it was three years in and it was clearly like a multi, multiple multi-billion dollar companies had already been funded y by Y Combinator. But the VCs that you would meet, like, well, they didn't read the headline yet. Right. And that's the other like trend that seems to happen over and over again is like the interesting thing that is happening is not being written about yet, right? You'll find out about it in like two or three years or five years if you're lucky. That's probably good for us because like that's how we make our money actually. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, how do we find the stuff before other people are onto it? That was always true. You know, it just takes forever. These days I just see the 10 year overnight success all over the place. And it's like, you'll see. Yeah, this, there's, and then it, it comes out of like the fundamentals, right? It's like for Y Combinator, I was the customer. I was an engineer who could like build anything. And like that was the part, the community I wanted to be a part of. It was probably six years. 2011 was the year that people realized that Y Combinator was legit. But that was the year like, like out of dumb luck, I ended up working there. <laughs> so. Right. So take us through that decision. So you sell Posterous to Yahoo, obviously not the outcome you had dreamed of based on early traction, but you know, that, that chapter of your life is sort of closed. How do you, how do you make that call? So Instagram comes out in 2010, we flatline, me and my co-founder are having a falling out, which I've actually talked about, I wrote about it in TechCrunch. I've done a, a couple of videos about it. I should probably do one with Sachin at some point. We weren't really on speaking terms for a good number of years. We're friends now, but, you know, that's one of the problems with startups is that they become so encompassing. They, you know, embody your ego. And then the problem is when things don't go right, you start looking for people to blame. And this is very common and it's almost uncontrollable, which is, you know, really hard. But it also helps for me now to be able to say like, hey, this might happen and, you know, be aware of it. Like maybe that'll help. Right. It was basically either I had to go or he had to go because we just disagreed on how to pivot. Like it was clearly not going to work. And then I ended up going to work at Y Combinator instead. And I initially was just designing homepages. Like I just needed a place. They're paying me, I think, $30,000 a year. I was like, you know, just literally like part-time contract work to like come in and help the companies. But I just loved, like got energized working with people and talking with them. It's crazy because like these companies turned into great companies. Like I remember working with Joseph Walla at HelloSign and we were designing their homepage and like first time experience or like same thing with um, Goat today, which is like amazing, amazing marketplace, right? And Eddie and Daishin, they were so 
stingy that they didn't even, they were from LA. They didn't even get an apartment in San Francisco. So they actually crashed with me at my apartment for like a month or something. (laughs) And so it was just cool to just be around smart people who were making things that were awesome. And when SV Angel and Yuri Milner came along and said, we're going to fund every single company at YC, I think Yuri Milner came in on you know, and any bot, one of these telepresence robots, he was in Moscow. Oh, and, um, I remember those. <laughs> it was nuts. I think I was at DSP at the time, and I'll never forget, oh man, I was in, um, I think it was called Sports Cafe. It was right across the street from the new DSP. And I used to eat lunch there a lot of days, and I'd see, you know, David Shaw, the football coach, and a bunch of people like would be, would be in and out there. And uh, I remember one day, they had a clearly a football recruit coming through. This was like 2012, 2013. You know, he was there with his family. Usually, you would see you know Coach Shaw with these with these guys. Like, but <laughs> he must have wanted to go into tech because uh, instead of him being there in person, he was there on an anybody oh, in sports cafe, and that yeah, was the Trevor pitch. Blackwell. Come yeah, to Stanford, awesome. and like you can be. <laughs> How funny! It was amazing. Was that Trevor's company yeah, yeah, yeah. before was, YC? So um, oh. YC's West Coast office was split with Anybots for a good number of years. Oh. So it was like awesome robots in the back and like dinner and like slop in the front. <laughs> wow. It was like chili, bad chili was the, I shouldn't bag on the food <laughs> that much. I always thought it was fine, but that's like the inside joke is like, oh, you know, it was Paul making the stuff himself for like the first few years. So so when you joined in 2011, that that kind of was the beginning of the inflection point. Like that was when that. Society, VCs figured out that this was someplace they needed to pay attention to because one, you're lucky, two, you're good. I mean, Dropbox people, I think, were like, oh, yeah, they got lucky. There are a bunch of people who get lucky. And then when Airbnb um, became a giant marketplace and a billion-dollar company, then everyone was like, this is the thing. <laughs> so it was very interesting to see, like, the number of applicants went up by a lot. And honestly, it was a different thing, like, you know, $17,000 for two people, not a lot of money. My YC batch in summer 08 was the least successful batch on record, even more unsuccessful than anything in 05 and 06 because uh, Lehman died. Like we closed our angel around the day Lehman died actually. And so going from 20 to you know $170,000 was like a really big game changer actually. I mean, I think it really helped the companies really fundamentally. And for folks who don't know, the 17 came in on the same terms for that 7%, and then the rest came in the form of the convertible note, which would basically be additional dilution. Yeah, it was uncapped, though. So it went into the next round. Oh, wow. And so that was how powerful that, you know, I think it's been, you know, it's since been blended. So now it's like 7% for like the 120 or whatever it is right now. Huh, Okay. And and just with the amount of early stage capital that's flooded in, they've basically needed to do that to not look like a gigantic ripoff. Or how does that? Yeah, evolve? I mean, I, basically Sam Altman and I had to take that program in house. So we raised a, a vehicle from institutional LPs in like 2014 to take it over. And before it was always a handshake. It was like, okay, well Yuri gets 75 and Ron gets 75, and then afterwards we added Andreessen and. Yeah, it, it was just Yuri and Ron that yeah, yeah. I remember when and it was this just deal on top, happened. Yeah. right? Harge, yeah. Harge actually, you know, uh, negotiated it. So, and Harge is a partner, and he's back at YC now. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, that must have been wild to have like you join the cult, <laughs> you go through it, and then you're back as a <laughs> a cult leader. <laughs> I was a high a priest, a, pri- a very low priest. <laughs> 
<laughs> a hype man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, I mean, what were the conversations you guys were having? Because to my mind, at least, this was kind of the moment where all of this started changing. Seed funds started being forming, you know, all, all of this. And I think the decision on, on the part of YC, maybe it wasn't even a decision, maybe it just naturally happened to start bringing in so many more companies and you had so many more applicants. What were the conversations you guys were having about yeah. that? So, I mean, Paul Graham built all of the first software and then Brett and I, you know, basically rebuilt it like right after him in sort of 2013, 2014. But it, it was always run by software. So even the first batches were like, you know, Arc. And so the interesting thing that I remember is that every single and, batch and was Paul, Paul, Paul Graham. Paul's yeah, built it own himself. flavor of Lisp. Yeah, yeah that's his own that's flavor what Arc of is, right? Lisp. Okay. Yeah. I think every single year they basically tried to keep the acceptance rate constant, like about 2%. I think sometimes it floated up above 2 Sometimes it was like 1.3, 1.4. But the rate of innovation will just sort of, you know, it's just going to go like that. And if anything, as interest in it goes up, like there will be actually more innovation. And so right. success rate is always going to be the same. If you select fewer companies, you're actually reducing the rate of innovation, which is the opposite of what we're trying to do. And so there is method to the madness. And actually, you know, there were definitely moments where YC felt broken. I think like the the batch that Coinbase and Instacart, both of those were sort of maybe a little bit too big. Was that and, uh, 2012, was actually, I think? Yeah. I think there was one that blew up to like maybe 75 or 80 and then that one um, was so big that the sort of transaction costs of like reloading who the person was and what their company was became a little bit too great. And so that was actually when uh, Paul Bukite, the creative Gmail, decided, hey, let's try doing uh, a little bit of sharding, which is like very straightforward. <laughs> it's like, let's separate this out into groups and then let's have those groups, let's have group partners be the people who sort of work on their cohorts. And then there's more continuity and there's less transaction costs, which just made sense. And then- Oh my God, you guys took the uh, the Constellation software approach to scaling YC. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. I mean, I think they're still doing it, you know? Like, uh, you know, I think it was, you know, Jeff Ralston and Michael Seibel decided to, you know, break it up into not just one day, but two days. So now there's like Tuesday and Thursday. And so the idea for scaling kind of continues and- I remember very specifically when the social network, the movie came out, that was, uh, Oh, that changed yeah. everything for all Isn't of us. Isn't that funny? I mean, that's where pop like culture you, you really. You grow up this freaking nerd and you just like computers and suddenly I, this was junior, senior year while I was in college. And like this thing that I've been doing on the side that was extremely uncool, which is like making an iPhone app instead of being social everyone that looks at you and they're like, so is, are you going to do that? Like, that's what's going to happen to you? And like, of course not. But it made ev yeah. the whole world wake yeah, up to totally. this cult that was going that's our on. our eternal September. That was the mo oh, that movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's over now. We should have packed it up back then. <laughs> the funny thing is, I think, I was just talking with friends the other night who rewatched it. I need to go back and rewatch it. They said it was just as amazing in 2020, but... I think the thing is like, it was like Liar's Poker. Like when Michael Lewis wrote Liar's Poker, he intended that to be like lampooning the industry and like, don't go do this. And it had the exact opposite effect. You know? Yeah. Pop culture is powerful. Right. And then I guess that just goes back to, you know, 
it's all mimetic desire, right? Like we just see we're a bunch <laughs> of monkeys and we basically just ape whatever we see. And, you know, my desires come from other people. So. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, there's, there you go, Facebook at its core. Uh, That's right. The most mimetic company ever. We'd be remiss here if we didn't spend a good amount of time telling the genesis of Initialize. Oh yeah, very accidental. <laughs> we're like caught up-ish here. I think 2012 was your first fund, something very small, like seven million. Yeah, so uh, right? Harge and Alexis and I were sort of the younger partners at YC, and uh, it was actually Alex Bangash at Trusted Insight who gave us our first money. And so it was actually, I think Jessica actually introduced us. Jessica Livingston actually introduced us and. You know, all of the partners were investing their their own money and we were just the younger partners. You know, Twitter hadn't IPO'd yet. We thought, well, maybe we would just try it out and we'd write 50 or $100,000 checks. It was actually Alex taught me a lot about LPs and this whole other world. You know, he was a little bit Y Combinator for my fund life because I think I really had no conception of the macro picture of how the world's capital was allocated and just the degree and like how much there was. It's like sort of staggering, actually. You know, all of tech is maybe $100 billion, you know, maybe early stage anyway. But, you know, the global economy is like $10 trillion, like, you know, trillions and trillions of dollars. Like we are truly just this like moat of dust on like just something far larger but the kernel of it, I read about, you know, actually working for on hedge fund software for Peter Thiel, which was like, you know, Joe Lonsdale made me read uh, The Dollar Crisis. You know, he made me read about like what happened in 1971. And today, of course, you go on Twitter and you see these graphs of like, you know, working class wages flat and then like education, housing, asset price bubble. It's like something really did happen in that moment. And I guess that's why Bitcoin was so obvious to me when I saw it, because you're like something weird is happening and it's water. We're just swimming in it. So, so all that being said, like, you know, someone who had spent Alex, you should have Alex on the show because he's a fascinating character. Like he worked at Bell Labs. He's an engineer too. He went to Wharton for his MBA and then he discovered, oh, there's this whole world of professional institutional LPs who allocate most of the world's capital. He basically wanted to help them get into funds like us. And, and so he took a really big chance on us. He was like, you're at the right place at the right time and you can deploy capital into companies pre-demo day and having worked with them for 10 weeks. So working backwards, it seemed obvious. On the other hand, in that moment, he was the one who was like, oh, this is, he gave us one of our first institutional LPs and put together like the first two, three million of our $7 million fund. So, Because the, the important insight that like you're talking about here is sure the the hundred billion that exists in our early stage universe even now when there's tons of money that's that's flooded into into venture capital it represents sort of this line of dust around the edge and on the other hand the Nasdaq is a ten trillion dollar market cap exchange and three trillion of it was funded by Sequoia and so like these companies that are just this little dust. You know, yeah. And that's and why this isn't ecosystem isn't is so my magical. thesis or Y Combinator's thesis or your thesis, which is the world is being remade by technology. And there are just a few people who, you know, what's funny is like, I'm still operating by the principle that like, it's all nerds, but you know, actually there are some jocks in there too now, <laughs> post-social post network, you know, that, and that's how it is. Well, you and know, now that's okay. with like, you know, no code and everything, like it's, it's just been so democratized. Like, mm -hmm. um, 
And that's a great thing. I mean, the reality is like I look around and I didn't realize there was so much money, but I sure did know there were so many problems. And then, you know, coming up, just your friends, the people you grew up with, like they're all the people who can build. And so it's like, don't tell me that there's too much money chasing too few people and too few good ideas. Like go outside. (laughs) There's like a billion problems that could only be solved by people. And then don't tell me there aren't enough smart people. Like if anything, the people are just trapped in these systems and, you know, basically machines that don't allow them to fully realize their potential and solve the problems. So how do we fuel this whole machine and make it better through money? You know, I realize that's both like highly capitalist and highly technological utopian, but that is like what I deeply believe at my core is um, this is what the world needs the most of. And so properly applied capital allocation plus like finding the best builders in the world. Like, I mean, that's one of the reasons we do this show, right? Like we tell these stories. That's this is the thing I believe that like, I actually now realize like I'm a weirdo, you know, you guys are weirdos for believing this. Like we are weirdos, but that's fine. Like I'm <laughs> fine with that, you know? Well, non-consensus and right. I think we've yeah. probably said it a dozen times on this show, but you have to be non-consensus. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, the younger guys within YC, you and Alex start thinking about, we work with these teams, we know them, we're getting these amazing team, this whole cult within Y Combinator. We should have a fund. Had Paul and Jessica thought about this before or? I mean, they, you know, quietly invested and right, you know, they were just doing it and Jeff Ralston. Right. Yeah. And so we just wanted to write checks of, you know, 50K to, uh, you know, 100,000. Like there were kind of like there's just other people's money. And we were like just sort of seeing if it was good. And it turned out, you know, we found... I feel good about Instacart because I definitely flagged them and helped them get into YC about halfway <laughs> through. Because that, that was like a 14 times pivot, right? It was like a massive... Oh, Instacart? Instacart was kind of that like the whole time. So I thought it was something where like he had 14 different oh, yes. ideas that was before and I tried met him. all of them. <laughs> okay. He sent me a six pack of beer using the driver app and, you know, he had the driver app and the consumer app working he had thousands of uh you know thousands with thousands of items with photos and inventory and price data and you know i don't know how he did it but he you know i think he had did stripe exist by then i think it did so you could put a credit card in and that's what you know he sent me a six pack of beer using his service and it was operating with two drivers in mountain view with the local safeway and uh, i was one of the first hundred people to try it and it was like basic intelligence test. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) you're reading a thousand applications every six months at YC. And so it it wasn't like we didn't see that idea. You know, Uber was out. Like I think uh, Zimride was about to do their Lyft version that was actually just, you know, uh, normal people in cars. So it was a new idea. And the key insight was you could do it asset light. And, uh, you you know, DoorDash did the same thing, of course. Yeah, exactly. That was, you know, the year after, right? And so there was this broad acceptance that that maybe was coming, but it was still like, we don't know if it's really going to work. And then it turned out like, yeah, it worked really well. If anything, a lot of the people who missed on it said, oh, it's been tried. It's called WebVan. And they didn't (laughs) didn't spot the why now, right? And that's why why now is such a crazy important question. Like we we put it and highlight it in our memos. It's like, why now? Like, What was your why now? Well, on Instacart, why uh, why that point? Oh, it was just uh, literally sixty to seventy percent of people who were you know had access to phones uh, could have smartphones, 
And that was the first moment where you could actually have a purely mobile distributed workforce that was onboarded literally off of Craigslist again. There's probably a Craigslist thesis in there, but it's been out there for a long time already. <laughs> so We talked a little bit about the founding moment of, of Initialize. So I th- were, you were only part-time at this point, right? Oh, and- uh, we were full-time at YC. And, you know, that's why it was kind of tricky, right? You know, we had inside information. We worked with teams for 10 weeks. So it was pretty straightforward to know, like, these people are <laughs> awesome and this is a real market. Or, And so I really, like... I didn't have any conception of how hard demo day is until I left YC because you are looking at like this list of hundreds of teams and you know nothing about them and you have to meet them. Whereas like when you're on the inside, it's like I met with every single team, everyone wanted help with their homepage. And then it's like the, the question was very simple. It's like, shoot, would I go work there? You know, and if the answer was yes, you know, meeting Brian Armstrong was, it's like crazy, stupid, simple to be like, yeah, I want to work for that guy because he was a domain expert. He did anti-fraud at Airbnb, great engineer. He built the first thing. He was obsessed with the Satoshi Nakamoto white paper. I had bought Bitcoin off of, um, you know, Mount Mount Gox Gox, and it was a disaster. And I was like, this is an obvious need. So yes. (laughs) (laughs) And it was like totally undersubscribed because... I went, went for a walk with Brian recently and he was like, yeah, I don't know. He, you know, one thing we didn't do as well back then that I think, you know, is still a, pro, a really difficult thing is like, how do you tell a YC company what their valuation should be at demo day? And there's always these like conspiracy theories that like YC partners are just trying to like get it up as high as possible. But the reality is like, these are like rational self-interested actors who also like, maybe you're doing it for the first time. And like, you know, it's Lake Wobegon up here. So, you know, even, you know, Brian was sort of and, like, and this I was before really know. the safe, right? There was no, so uh, this was a note. I, yeah, I think the note was still what people did. The founders would set the terms. The founders would say, I'm raising a note with this cap. Yeah, I think like, I think it was, you know, in the mid teens and it was really high. Right. And he didn't get his full fill, honestly, at demo day. And that's like credit to him because it didn't matter. I thought the lesson for some time was if it's hot, don't do it. And that was hmm. also wrong, actually. That's actually also wrong. <laughs> and why, why was that wrong? It's not that things that are hot can't be good. It's that if it's hot, it's not necessarily good, right? right. It's actually like not an indicator. Yeah. And that's the problem, right? It's like if you have very little data and then we're social animals then we think that we read signal into things that are random. And so that's the danger with things getting hot is that like, really? Like, I mean, it's weird now because like when we were nobody investors, yeah, it was just very bewildering to me that people would be like, oh my God, they are investing. We have to invest, right? And then now they're doing <laughs> that to us. And we're like, well, I mean, this is just a guess, guys. So, I mean, I'm not complaining because it's good. It lowers the cost of capital for our companies, right? And all of these things are great. Let's just give you a moment to to flex here. So just for people who aren't as familiar with your work, you know, that first fund was $7 million. I think your most recent fund was a hundred and... Oh, 230. Yeah. 230. Yeah. Okay. And, and you've funded companies such as... Coinbase and Instacart in that first fund, Open Door and Cruise Automation in the second fund, uh, Flexport also, uh, Patreon in that second fund... Right. So not shocking to any listeners now that people would take signal from when you are participating. Yeah, totally. Which is, I mean, (laughs) I appreciate that. I don't know. I mean, but the reality is like, even now, like 
we do not have a crystal ball, even though this is like the opposite of what I should be saying on this channel. But the reality is like, we're just trying to be rational human beings that just, you know, I actually really like how Matt at Benchmark talked about it, which is like, this isn't about like seeing things that aren't there. It's about seeing things that like are in front of us, actually, <laughs> like to be seeing the present the, more the, clearly. I think it's that uh, venture capital is not about seeing the future. It's about seeing the present very clearly. Yeah. Yes, thank you. I'm I am notoriously bad at verbatim quotes, but that was general idea. <laughs> it's uh, it's so true though. The second fund was in 2013, right? I think. Yep. Yeah, and so we were still working at YC, and then just like people would come out, and honestly, I also really underestimated how easy it is to just write a 50 to 200k check, and then that second fund was 40 million, and so. We learned the hard way that, oh, percentage ownership matters a ton, right? I mean, that fund is going to be great because I think there are going to be six or seven unicorns in that, like, in the end. And it's still going to be a great fund, but just not as good because it's a way bigger fund and we didn't 5x the size of the check, right? Yeah, I mean, it's just math at some level beyond that. Yeah, so Gary, why does percentage ownership matter? Because this audience is full of founders who have never been on the VC side of the table and who have heard from a VC, sorry, we're not going to be able to get there because we can't get a big enough chunk of your company. It's like a lot of founders are going to look back across the table and say, the price is low now, there's going to be a huge multiple, why do you need to own so much of it? I guess at different stages, it's different reasons. At that stage, what I realized was... LPs are still sort of looking for things that look like Sequoia or Benchmark from like the 90s. So there is a little bit of still cargo cult thinking in LP-dom. And I, you know, I think it's changing. There are, you know, people like Alex Bangash and Trusted Insight. And there are like institutions that are sort of coming around to the idea that seed is its own asset class and it can be done in a different different way because people are still thinking like seed is like being a series A investor and you have like, you know, X number of partners and you can sit on X number of boards. And actually, like at the early stage, it's totally different. Like, I, I think that those rules shouldn't apply quite in the same way. But all that being said, it's like until you have the, you know, DPI and like, you know, this is top 1%, top 5% returns, you know, which I'm we're blessed to have now. But, you know, in the moment, it's actually like raising a fund is hard, right? If you talk to any VC, it's you know, it takes years. We were lucky it took like, you know, when I left YC, it took us like nine months to get to our first close and then, you know, hit the hard cap in a year and maybe two months. So, and that was short. That was really fast, actually. And it's hard, right? And so you are sort of constrained. By and large, the large pools of institutional capital are not the types of institutions that embrace doing things differently. <laughs> and so this is... yeah. Like and the DPI results are still from 20 years ago. And so I think this will change in the next 10 years. But for now, people are still going off of what they know is true. And again, it's the long time scale. It's the 10 year overnight success, right? This will change, but and it's perhaps changing right now. And honestly, Angelist is doing a big chunk of it. You know, I respect the hell out of Naval. Like he is pushing forward the state of the art because he is recognizing that the world is absolutely like chock full of capital and like, you know, we have a fully institutional LP base and they are awesome, right? It's awesome to have an institutional LP base of like the top universities, but it's um, being able to unlock an entire other tidal wave of family offices that didn't have access. That's, I mean, honestly, like 
500 startups in Dave McClure and Naval with AngelList, like all of these are sort of unlocking that. Like Dave was the only person who would get on a plane and meet family offices in like all parts of the world, right? And I think that's under-recognized, actually. It really is about access and the world is full of money. And, you know, now the miracle is not only happening in Silicon Valley, it's happening all over the world. And this is actually the core story of venture uh, early stage venture in the past 10 to 15 years is like, it used to be all of us trying to copy <laughs> what Sequoia did 20 years ago. And then today it's like, hey, we get to bounce our own ball. We get to find our own markets. Like the only rule is still like, you know, what do they say? Yeah, you got to put uh, Mula in the Kula, right? <laughs> yeah. You still have to like get the right. DPI back, right? That's a Duvest quote, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. Can you define DPI for us? It's a distribution for paid-in capital. Yes, that's right. So, and that's the, mul the actual yeah. multiple. So that it's you like would get there's out. TVPI, which is total value of the fund. That includes uh, total markups, but yeah. distribution Unrealized, means like that's yes. like nope. You have realized this exit. Yeah, you can't eat on TVPI is the thing. But <laughs> yeah, your endowments cannot actually you know pay for you know salary or buildings or anything that they actually use. You know. With TVPI, they just get marks. The marks are actually even more dangerous. So, you know, I, I do empathize a lot with, um, you know, the LPs because it's a very bewildering time. Software is eating money right now. People are starting to say that incumbent businesses in, you know, the public markets that do not have tech at the core of them maybe won't have future cash flows in another 10 years. That's starting to happen. So, which is very like the opposite of what I thought, you know, when... Uh, Twitter IPO'd and, you know, I gave the money to my wealth manager. I was like, get me hedged. And it was like, absolutely <laughs> wrong. It was like 2013, you know, it was like the stupidest possible time. It's like, there was like easy 10X in tech, you know, so. I want to offer a devil's advocate position to the notion that you're constrained by the number of boards. You were basically making an argument that an old school way of thinking is that you have a uh, constrained number of bets you can make in a portfolio. But if you look at things like 500 startups, where you're making very small investments, having very small ownership stakes, uh, the sort of more negative way to phrase this would be spray and pray approach, um, that that can produce great returns too. I mean, it's not the approach we're choosing. So we've been very explicit about not doing that. Yeah, I wanted to ask you directly, how power law distributed are your returns? And if we look at initialize two or initialize three, or, or there's data on initialize one, so maybe we'll, we'll go with that. Like how much of the returns come from one, two, three companies? For fund one, it's like 70% Coinbase and 30% Instacart, right? And that's like, a you know, we got 2x DPI and, you know, I think 11 or 14x. I'd have to double check what the TVPI on it is, but it's like, we're really happy about it, but it's also easy because it's a small fund. And it's reasonable to say that like the rest of the companies basically contributed no, no cash return to the LPs. Yeah. And it's tricky because there are some things in there that did hit billion dollar status and then just got wiped out like Zenefits. Right. This, this is the difference between TVPI and DPI. <laughs> That's the TVPI versus DPI, right? So the TVPI can go away. And to bring it to back to the beginning of the episode, like this is what happened to the company that I decided not to join, you know, when I decided to keep my job at Microsoft for another couple of years, paper markups are not liquid. Yeah. So, yeah, it's tricky. I mean, I think going back to the spray and pray argument, it's tricky. I'm like, you know, SV Angel is one of the best investors I've ever seen and I respect the hell out of it. And I actually think their numbers are amazing and they don't take an institutional LP base at all. 
Box Group is another that I think is doing it really, really well. And they don't have percentage ownership. And I talked with David Tish recently and I'm like, yeah, he's doing an amazing job and blazing a different trail. The, the other thing is like you can get ownership as long as you're in it. And uh, that's the other way to make it work, you know. And I think SV Angel is a good example of that. They've made an incredible amount of money on SPVs. And I don't know as much about, you know, how Box is doing on that, but I suspect they are also doing amazing at having access and then just doubling down on the winners, right? And it's not that different than what we were doing when we were first starting, you know? It's like, you just have to have the relationship and be in the right pond and, you know, the rest sort of takes care of itself. Like you said, it's access. Yeah. So you, you spin out initialized, you raise... 125 million dollar fund three right and then yep 125 yep that was the risky one for us i mean that one was the you're not going to be at yc anymore and it's a much bigger fund like jumping from 40 to 125 so and then 225 and then 230 for the most recent that's right now this whole early stage landscape looks so different right like you were one of the first i mean there was floodgate and baseline you know probably around the same time maybe a little earlier than you were started but like yeah i love those guys they really respect what they do they're so great but like such a small group now uh you know you throw a stone in san francisco and you it lands at the the you know doorstep of it yeah yeah i'm an lp and a bunch of them and you know they're my friends you know they have their rolling <laughs> funds and i gotta support them you know and, and and I guess at the same time, the big funds, which for a while kind of abandoned seed, they're now back in force, uh, at least that I see. Like they're leading seed deals all the time. How do you navigate this as a founder these days? Oh, I'm excited. I think it's great, you know, honestly, because what's funny, and this is like maybe a dangerous thing to say, but I'll say it anyway. It's like, look, I made all the money that I really care about. And it's actually not, I don't need a lot, you know? And then the scary thing about venture is like, if you spend enough time here, you'll start finding people who like will never be happy with like any amount of money and power. And to me, it's like, this is the most growth mindset industry that exists on the planet. And so just like, let's make the whole world a lot bigger. And I, you know, the cool thing is like, the world doesn't need me to believe that it's just happening on its own. Honestly, it's like all of the people we talked about, whether it's Paul Graham or Naval or, you know, so many people, they're actually just like, they're coming at it with, they're bringing more capital. They're bringing more smart people. It's like, not just Y Combinator. I mean, whether it's Alchemist or like, so, I mean, there are so many really great places, what you guys are doing in Seattle. I mean, it's just amazing to see new places. I mean, EF, like entrepreneur first, like they are do they are minting companies that are great today. And so I think the whole market is continuing to grow. And the most dangerous thing in this market is, and you meet investors all the time who act like this is um, zero sum. They're like, Oh my God, I hate those people. They're like crowding me out. Like they're increasing the you know valuation and you know, the post money is unbelievable. absurd. No, you know, this, this is going to end in tears. And I'm like, You know, what I realized at some point (laughs) is like, you will always sound smart. You will be the sage when you are negative. People want to hear it. You will always have an audience when you are like, you know, the perma bear, right? But perma bears don't make money is the thing. And so I would rather be as like big tent as possible. And it's like every geography in the world is having startup activity today. And that's beautiful. I think like people can escape like basically 
look, working at like a big company is a little bit like going to work in prison, you know? I don't know. I mean, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's not that bad, right? But, but you're really, you really embrace that. Yeah, I don't know. It's true. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's my lived experience, you know, it might, it's probably different than other people's, but you know, I have to just like, it's just true to me. And I want that freedom for everyone. I believe in the individual who's a builder who can run their own destiny, right? To be, but they have to do it all is a tricky thing, right? Like it's not enough to be a great engineer because that's like being a great cog in one wheel, right? Like you have to be the, you know, machine builder <laughs> and that's so much harder. Like you can't just be good at design. You can't just be good at engineering. You've got to be great at all of it. And it's so hard. All right. I'm going to get super esoteric for a minute. So Let's take social media companies as an example. There was an explosion of, you know, Facebook, Instagram, Posterous, Tumblr, these companies that eventually consolidated to very few, if not one. And, you know, between 2011 and 2019, let's keep rolling funds out of this. We had probably two, three, four hundred fifty-ish million dollar seed funds get started and raise a fund one. So are there dynamics at play? Like, are there winner-take-all dynamics or network effects that are going to lead to a consolidation in seed investing the way that it did in sort of your previous life with blogging? Or do you think that capital, allocating capital is a different thing? Yeah. There used to be a lot more accelerators. Yes and no. It does feel, well, I can't really tell. It feels like there are as many accelerators today that are being started. It's just that, you know, they peter out. <sighs> Will there be a consolidation? The reality is like, I hope not. Because in the end, it's kind of, there's this idea of the Series A crunch. But the thing is, at that point, it's just one of the metrics, right? I think Seed gives people a chance. And then that's all they're really entitled to at some level. Or it's not, you know, actually entitled is the wrong word because people aren't actually entitled to it at all, right? Uh, they shouldn't be anyway. And maybe that's what people think they are entitled. You know, people do feel like maybe they're entitled to money now, which is brutal. Uh, and that's scary to me. You know, if you look back over the this whole period of history, we've been talking about all these step function changes of like YC gets started. There are all these, you know, all these companies, <laughs> 12 a year or whatever that are getting started. Well, that's way too much. Like you can be bearish on that. Then YC starts taking, you know, a lot more companies like, oh man, 70 companies a batch. No way that's going to work. Like you'd be bearish on that. But there are multiple billion dollar companies in that one. Right. 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 And then it's like all these seed funds start, you know, all this capital comes in this space. Oof, man, way too much capital coming in this space. That's not going to work. But if you look back on all of these cycles, like, like they all worked, you know, there are power law dynamics to each of them, but like they all worked like net, a lot of value was created by all of these expansions. I mean, I think there will be new series A firms, there will be new series B firms. And I hope, you know, I think that the seed firms will grow up like, you know, we've grown up from writing 50k or $100,000 checks, and those companies turned into unicorns, and they allowed us to create a firm that I look at what First Round has done and I respect the hell out of Josh. And one of the first things he did was he took me out to dinner and he was like, so you got this $125 million fund. What do you need to know? I'm like, major, major respect for that because like that's most growth mindset thing. And, you know, he didn't have to do that. And but he's even today like that. And so I'm like, 
big tent as heck is like the right thing. This is the most growth mindset thing in the world to be doing. It, and then it comes back to the founder, right? Like, can you make a flywheel that works and does it solve a problem? And it's not like there aren't enough problems. There are a ton of problems, right? And then I'm so long on software that I think we're just scratching the surface. Like even today, you know, because we funded Instacart, now what I realize is like, we might be able to integrate the whole supply chain in a way that's never happened before. We funded Shelf Engine, which is like grocer to distributor. We funded Silo, which is, you know, distributor to grower, right? And then Instacart. And then like even within the store, like we funded Standard Cognition, which is cashierless checkout. And all of these things work together. And I'm like, I didn't have a thesis about this. My only thesis was like really good engineers are going to go and remake all of the planet, right? And, you know, I think we're scratching the surface on it. So... So all of the other stuff about like, oh, are there too many seed funds or too many startups? It's like, look, it's up to the founders, honestly. Like, hey, I was a founder and like, luckily we did end up making money for our seed investors anyway. But, you know, I screwed up so many things. And even when you screw up, like, you know, I got I got to buy a house in Noe Valley because of like my screw up, you know? So that's the weird thing, you know? I mean, it is crazy, crazy privilege to work in tech. It's crazy privilege that I never acknowledged before that we can build software and experiences that, yeah, I mean, it is privilege, right? And like, that's why people hate us. <laughs> that's fine, right? Like people hate tech today because it's scary. It's like pushing the world in ways that are like, unintended, right? Being a builder is totally like having superpowers where you can get leverage on your abilities to achieve things that humans previously couldn't do. And and you're right, like that being able to wield that, particularly when people get sort of things like soul control over their company, it's scary to the rest of the world. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, startups that become tech giants, they are basically autocratic dictatorships, right? And then they hold very deep, but you know, the lucky thing is we get to fund the next thing that arms the rebels and, you know, fights the good fight. And, you know, the hard part there is either you die a hero or you uh, wake up to find yourself a villain, right? <laughs> so that, but the cycle continues. Indeed. Well, I think it's time for a social network part two. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is a good place to leave it. Gary, before you run, tell us about what you're doing on YouTube and close that thread from earlier on the influencer investor concept. Oh, God. I feel like, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants, almost certainly, I mean, whether it's Paul Graham's essays or, you know, Mark Suster's, uh, you know, Fred Wilson, all, you know, this was all new, honestly, like the, it was the ivory tower. Now it hasn't been for a while through blogging. And I think that direct access to people is very, very powerful. You know, I met Casey Neistat. He came by the initialized office and I loved meeting him. He's a really, really engaging person. But then uh, to see how our interns interacted with him was fascinating because it was like they they had been friends for years and years. And, you know, he'd live streamed his life for years and years. So they actually were. And so I find it very powerful to be able to just spend 10 minutes with people every single week for as long as I decide to do this, you know, see where it goes. Because helping people with this, I don't know. I, I get very depressed thinking about the state of tech and capitalism and all this money, but I realize there needs to be the power for people to create jobs and to create new products and services that solve problems. I still believe in that, right? And as much as there's Black Mirror out there, I do think that there is 
a space for someone who, I don't know, can help people just get to where they should be. If Paul Graham, you know, were to do video, like, I'm never going to do what he does. Like, you can't imitate it. It's like, it's so, I'm going to do the Gary Tan of YouTube, and then we'll see what happens, you know? I, and I hope that it leaves behind something that's more powerful, more valuable to founders. I'm trying to tell my personal story, and it's like, honestly, I've been trying to be as vulnerable as possible. Like these are the reasons why Posturus didn't make it. And honestly, we could have been it, you know, we could have exited for a billion like Tumblr, or we could have run the table like Instagram or, but you know, I could have been a contender, but like, let me tell you about the places where I didn't get it right. And here's where founders don't get it right. And my job is not just money, but also to help you get to that place where I want you to go, where you want to go, which is, you know, the promised land to, to get to a billion users, to, to make a thing that really matters. And I, you know, that's a tech positive capitalism, positive message that I don't know. I just believe I want more of that. Right. I think the world needs a lot more of that. Well, I'm uplifted. I feel, uh, <laughs> feel much better about my, my next meeting. So Gary, thank you for, for coming on and, and joining and uh, spending the time with us today. Thank you guys for having me. We'll do it again. LPs, we will uh, we'll catch you next time.